I think a 20-year track record is useful because if a team has continued to deliver strong performance over 20 years, it's demonstrated that it has the skill to adapt to markets. And that's what investors are buying, skill. As to whether a track record or a simulated track record, what's the relative merits? I believe a track record is, is a very blunt instrument. Investors shouldn't be looking at track record. What they should be doing is understanding what the manager does, but more importantly, why he does it. Why did you make the choice to do this thing that you say you do as opposed to other things you could do? Justify that. Do you have a understanding of what you're doing? Do you have a process? And do you have the skill to deliver that repeatedly in the future as market conditions change? I wanted to mention that today's podcast is brought to you by the Eurex Exchange. And given all the market talk at the moment about rate hikes, you may find some useful ways of hedging your portfolio risk if you visit the Eurex website. This is Andrew Baxter. I'm the CIO and co-founder of Cambridge Capital Management, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. with your explanation of, of the forecast method and how yeah. it all evolves in the process. So we have some 5,000 data points a day. And what we're trying to do is identify how well that model is doing. So if we, if we asked a person what his forecast was for you know, the S&P for the end of the year, and he said 10,000, then we'd probably suspect you know, uh, his judgment was, was quite poor. Um, if we you know, he, he, he forecast it will be the same price as we closed on Friday, then we might think his judgment was better. So when, when, we, when we ask somebody a question, we make a decision about the quality of the answer. Sometimes that quality of the answer is based on how high quality of that individual's answer has been previously. So really what we want when we ask a model for a forecast is, what is your forecast? And what level of confidence do I have in the answer you gave me? So we don't ask models for forecasts, we ask them for both. Their answer, their forecast, plus the uncertainty or confidence that they have in that. And knowing that, we know how to combine all these forecasts together to create a single combined forecast for the asset. So let's think of a practical real-world example. You are the manager of a proprietary trading desk you have 10 people on the desk, they all trade 10 markets each, you have capital you need to allocate to members of that desk. Well, you're more, more most experienced trader trading the e most profitable market this year, US equities, gets the biggest allocation. And the least experienced trader, the new graduate on the desk um, trading Japan gets the, you know, a very difficult market, gets the least allocation. You make a judgment based on the underlying competence of that model and the market on which he's trading when you decide to allocate capital. And in a similar way, we can do a, th a similar thing here. So when we look at the forecast coming out of our model, we look at the performance of the model itself. We also look at the performance of that model applied to that market. So how 
might the system, what are the failure modes of the system? Well, we know that carry models, we were talking about before, carry models work and then they don't for a while and then they'll work again. When they stop working, they tend to stop working across a wide variety of assets. And when they stop working, different types of carry model stop working across a wide variety of assets. So you've got quite a lot of potential information there that you can use. There's some grouping, some structure, some knowledge of how markets behave that you can take into account when trying to learn whether this forecast is going to perform well tomorrow. You know, if, if a carry model on asset A, one day goes by and you have one more data point. Can't do a lot with one data point. But if you look across the cross-section of carry models and the cross-section of markets on which you apply them, you potentially have hundreds of data points every day that you can use to help learn whether carry models on those assets is going to perform well tomorrow. And it's that approach of understanding the drivers of the uh, performance of the models, the drivers of the market, that domain knowledge, that knowledge of the investment process, using that as a starting point uh, to apply dynamic or machine learning techniques is a key because it's it's transformed the problem from being here's 5,000 data points and 10 years of history, go and work that out, to let me give you some strong hints of what is the system underneath that's driving this data? And we talked before about the importance of, um, in finance, understanding what the system is that's driving the data, because without that, it's just a very noisy data problem sure. that machine learning techniques don't work well on. So to answer your question, ensemble techniques, it's a dynamic mechanism allocating across a committee or a pool of forecasts applied to assets to generate a single combined forecast for each of the assets. Sure. So I'm going to try and make it even more simple so that at least I understand some of the challenges and, and how you deal with that. And, and maybe I'm going in the completely wrong interpretation of what you said, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So I'm thinking that you're trying to forecast to a certain extent how the model should be overall positioned today relative to how it was positioned yesterday. And if there is a slight difference, no doubt, I'm sure your model will adjust for that position wise. Am I okay so far? Um. <laughs> so what I see often when talking to people is that essentially when you put all your techniques together and all your models and, and so on and so forth, they will give you what should at the end of the day, they will give you what should the position in each of the markets we trade, what should it be based on all the information and processes we have. And if it's different from yesterday, if we need to buy more euros, we buy more euros. If we need to do something different, we'll, we'll make the change. So that's how we get to the, the current position size. But here's my challenge. I'm thinking that you are forecasting, and I could be wrong here, that you have all these different models trying to give some kind of input. And if you look at the environment, for example, for long term, and I don't even know whether you, I imagine you have some long term, say momentum or trend following models in there, and you might have some very short term momentum models in there. 
And I'm thinking it must be very difficult to know how to weight these two models because one might have a very strong conviction today, could be a short-term trading system, but a long-term trading system, at least in the trend-following space, it might not look very attractive today. Mm-hmm. But if you don't stay with the position, so to speak, until unless the signal changes, I, I, I agree with that. But sometimes you just have to ride out the pain a little bit, the correction, because often if you don't, it's too late to reap the benefit. And, and so what I don't quite, like where I can't connect the dots in, in what you're trying to explain is how do you align those different points if you're asking your models every day, where should I be positioned? When some, when some models are looking much longer into the future and may be very profitable in the long run, but may not be very confident today, but you don't want to miss when the big move happens. Can I, I don't know whether that makes sense, but I don't know whether you can address that, um, you know, how to combine so many different models uh, in, in a sense. Okay, so um, I think in the, the answer to your last question, we talked about the importance of um, not seeing it as an abstract data problem, but mm. thinking about some structure for that data. And what you've just said to me is, I believe there's some structure in the world of models. There are short-term models, there are long-term models, there are models which have a certain behavior dynamic, and there are other models which have a different behavior dynamic. And trying to find one one approach and apply it to all of them universally, universally sounds like you think that's perhaps not a very sensible thing to do. And I agree with you. And if we saw this as a data problem, and we it would be very hard for a lot of techniques to identify this these different categories of perhaps models that are creating data of different dynamics, slow moving, trend following types, fast moving, reversion types, or or whatever the categories you might imagine. Sure. So what you've just said, I understand this investment space. And I understand that there are models of various types. In actual fact, I kind of know that because I wrote them and therefore I expect them to behave differently. So maybe we should we should treat these separately when thinking about how to combine them together. And that's an important observation, uh, very important, because it bringing the knowledge of the problem, the domain uh, simplifies the the challenge significant the data challenge significantly, and we need to do that. Um, so yes, there is it is necessary to uh, take that into account when one's uh, when one's combining different techniques together, the fact that they're fast moving, slow moving and different, different uh, categorizations. Okay. Okay. That that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, in terms of developing the basic models, which I assume is, is you and Ian who, who are behind that. I mean, how do you, how do you come up with new ideas? I mean, I'm jumping a little bit into sort of the research side as well. I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm just curious, uh, you know, how do you come up with, with new ideas? Because I, I imagine it's, you know, the idea comes first for a model or are you looking at the data saying, well, actually here, if we did this, then that might look attractive. How do, how do you do that? On your side, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we 
the idea of an understanding of the dynamics and behavior of markets is often the genesis for ideas. Uh, one thing we have taken advantage of in the last few years, and I think that will become increasingly important, is the fact that one can um, ask the data to suggest areas of uh, for interesting research. So you know, a panacea might be that we'd, we'd send a machine over there to go off and build trading models, and it will come back and say, I've got the ultimate trading model. But we know that's very difficult because often one might find something that works um, you know, in backtest but has no chance uh, of survival. <laughs> well, yeah, and it can't be explained. And, sure. you know, and maybe it doesn't work uh, out of sample. And I think we can think of, we can all think of many examples of that. Um, and certainly many years ago, you know, we looked at uh, genetic evolution of models, uh, millions upon millions of of models and iterations to uh, to build the fittest and finest models. It's a really hard problem. Um, so, but what the the looking for statistically significant patterns in data where that can be very useful is to hint at areas for further research. But for us, the for a model to um, be acceptable, it has to be based on sound investment process and understanding how markets behave. Now, once we have that foundation, then we can use a variety of different tools to implement that. And one of the great advantages for us of linking into the into the guys in the engineering department here is there are tools which maybe I'll be very well understood in other fields other than finance that we can borrow and bring across. We can we can create a better mousetrap, um, a better method of implementing what we do, um, which gives us an edge and maybe, maybe generates a, a, a different uh, return path, which is important um, because we're not all running, we're, we're not with the crowd running for the door at the same time as, you know, as, as prices are moving. So different techniques um, and more sophisticated techniques are very helpful, but it has to be based on sound understanding of how markets behave, but increasingly we can use data. I, I really don't like the term data mining, but data sure. mining exploration techniques to hint at interesting areas for, for further consideration. Sure. sure. No, I think that's fair enough. Now, if I'm right in my understanding that essentially all of these different you know, models on a particular market will each, you know, uh, give their, their vote, uh, both confidence and, and uh, you know, profitability, I think, uh, although I'm not using the same terms as you are, but I think uh, that that's sort of in the direction uh, you were explaining it. When you look at that, this is just to get a feel for the program itself. So since you're not looking on a trade by trade basis, what would you expect to be the average length or duration from when the combined signal, if we call it that, starts getting long or short, doesn't really matter, until it changes direction? What I'm trying to get at here is, you know, how slow, how fast, when you combine all of these things, is the overall approach, in lack of a better word. We have models that trade and hold as short as one day, okay. and some will hold nine months. Um, at the portfolio level, it's a blend. 
And as you say, it depends whether the market conditions are such that shorter term models are more effective at delivering a high quality return or actually optimizing transaction costs and moving much more slowly is, is more effective. And that is a system determined uh, weighting. And it's a continuous adjustment, adjustment of weights in the portfolio every day. But if we can think of it in terms, as you said, from you know, the speed of, of, of turnover, it's in the order of, of, of two to four weeks. Okay. So, but that does vary over, over economic cycle, varying on market conditions. Sure. No, of course. Have you ever had to, I mean, obviously there's been a long process for you in terms of developing it, um, you know, from, from even before CCM, but have you ever had a, a sort of an inc incident where you felt, you know, we, we're not sure what's going on in the market and how it impacts the portfolio. So we need to override what we're doing. Or are you one of those who would say, absolutely not, we're never going to make any intervention uh, to the system? We've tried to uh, identify the failure modes of what we do. Mm. Uh, we've tried to um, diversify away risk where we can across a variety of models, a variety of timescales, adaptive weighting of those. We, we bring all our forecasts up to a portfolio construction level, uh, risk management level. Um, we build a portfolio um, using a, a market risk model. We build a portfolio of holdings that we rebalance to. And that portfolio contains within it the risks that we believe are the, uh, give the, the largest marginal return to that portfolio, but constrained by concentration li risk limits by asset by asset class, the uh, maximum standard deviation or VAR um, variance, VAR and uh, expected shortfall of that portfolio as well. So we recognize that the risk model in stable markets will be a very good forecast of tomorrow's risk in the portfolio. But when markets are not stable, when we have events in the market, we need to recognize that risk portfolio, that risk model may fail. And we need to put hard limits on the positions that we're the magnitude of the positions we can take across the different assets. So we impose constraints there as well. So do we intervene? No. If market conditions evolve such that we become concerned about events, then we can revisit the risk limits that we apply at the portfolio level or the individual holdings level. And we operate under a institutional style risk management uh, process. We have daily risk many meetings of the risk committee. Um, and within that are considered whether there's anything that we're aware of that would warrant intervention. Um, having said that, over the period that you know we've been running, running this portfolio, that's that's barely ever warranted adjustment of those risk limits. But there's a structure in place there um, to control risk without discretionarily turning models on or off and so forth. Sure. Um, so it's a fully automatic process because risk management is built into the whole process all the way through. Sure. And, and, uh, and actually you kind of, uh, your, 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 your foresight is great because the next area I really do want to talk about is the, the risk management. And you've already touched upon some of the things. What would you say 
if you just sort of picked one, um, and maybe there is more than one, but I'm, I'm not sure, but what is the main risk framework or definition that you target? Is that a VAR or standard deviation, or is there one overriding of, of all of the ones you mentioned? So we, I mean, for risk for us is a number of things. I think what we're trying to deliver is a high quality risk adjusted return to the investor. So the, the volatility of that return should be low relative to the return we deliver. Um, we actively control risk on a daily basis, and that's controlled at multiple levels, as we talked about the the errors in the models are diversified away, models are allocated dynamically across the ones that work. And then we build portfolios and the portfolio we build is a, is a set of holdings in the, in the markets that we trade that maximizes what we expect is the return for tomorrow for a fixed quantity of risk. Um, we have a risk budget and we build a portfolio to that budget. Now, we forecast the future variances and covariances, how those markets are going to move in the near future with respect to each other. Um, and obviously some markets diversify uh, each other and we take that into account. But our risk model won't be right. We don't have a crystal ball. It, it, it will have errors in it and those errors will be greatest when there are events in the market, when markets become volatile, when markets become more correlated. So we recognize that and we put limits, concentration limits, on the different holdings that we can hold. Um, and, and as a backstop to that, you know, uh, a typical risk model uh, has a view that the world is normally distributed, but it's not. Mm. So we need to think about that left tail. We need to think about those, the possibility of extreme events that will result in large losses. And we look at our portfolio and look at the historic um, performance of markets and how much pain might there have been in the past if we'd held this proposed portfolio in a variety of different scenarios? What was the worst outcomes we would have seen? So we look at VAR and other tail risk measures as well. And then on a, on a final, once the portfolio has been constructed, we also run a wide variety of market risk scenarios through there as well, whether that be September the 11th or, or, or whatever, to sure. try and explore if things really did go wrong. Is this a portfolio? that we want to hold. Um, so there's multiple levels of, by construction, safe risk, but checks and balances as well to deal with where where things may, may be less different than we expect. Sure, sure. And just to simplify things maybe a little bit, just again for me to sort of be able to to um, visualize what it is that you're, you're doing. I mean, is your risk budget fixed on a daily basis or does it actually vary? I know you have a limit and that's probably fixed. Uh, I imagine that doesn't change, but the, the actual, uh, I'm just curious on how the, the date, because I think this is one of the most interesting things um, I've come across recently. And that is that many managers have historically always said, I target a fixed volatility. So the portfolio, it's a 15% volatility, annualized volatility portfolio. And that's how we, you know, size the positions, et cetera, et cetera. But in my own experience, at least, I don't know. And I, well, I don't think that's a particular um, efficient way of doing it because we know, and I get, I come from the trend following world, but we know there are periods of time where the environment for trend following is not very conducive. So 
why would you target the same level of risk or volatility in the periods where there are fewer trends? So again, for those managers who have mastered the technique of, in, in a simple way of describing it, being able to measure the environment for their strategy, be it trend following, be it something else, doesn't matter, and then set the risk budget accordingly. And I've only come across very few and even fewer of, of those who have been able to demonstrate success in doing so. Yeah. How, how do you, is there anything, any of these things that I'm talking about here that, that you do or, or, or how does it work in, inside your uh, approach? I, I think there's a few traps. If we go back to where we, we were talking many years ago, um, when people were typically thinking about the world as a trade, it plays a, a dollar long or a dollar short, or maybe recognize that a bond market has a different level of risk than natural gas markets. So actually we'll place a risk adjusted dollar long or dollar short. And an evolution of that is to say, well, actually natural gas and other energy contracts are correlated in some form. So maybe if I'm a dollar long on one, I probably shouldn't be a dollar long on the others as well, maybe you know, a bit less than that. So we take that correlation into account, but maybe natural gas isn't correlated with you know, the cheese future. So people have always thought about the world in a expected risk and correlation sense. What we're doing is doing that on a more formal basis. So we build a risk model, which encapsulates what do we expect the future volatility of each asset to be and how correlated do we expect them to be in turn. Now, that means we can build a portfolio where asset A maybe has a smaller position than it would have done because we're also long B, C, and D. Or maybe asset A hedges B. So that's all great, but there are some traps. One of the traps is... Sometimes markets are quite benign, have low volatility. And as we all know, risk builds up. It, you can take larger and larger leverage and markets are not moving. Mm. So that's good. We're getting these, these returns and no risk is coming through and then risk does come through. There's an event or something and the prices move dramatically and everybody's limit long on risk and has to unwind positions and that can be very painful. Well, can we deal with that by looking at the volatility of those assets? Well, not really, because if we've had a period of three, six, 12 months when prices have not moved and we only look back three, six, 12 months to assess the volatility of that asset, then it didn't move. So the volatility is zero. We'll have a lot of a large position in that asset then. It's not very risky until it is. So the risk model needs to incorporate the fact that assets can behave for relatively long periods in a way that suggests that they're benign when in practice they're not. They are capable of jumps. Their, their, their distributions are not normally distributed. So they need to take that into account and deal with that. Um, so you need to have a quite a sophisticated risk model, first of all, uh, to constrain the, the risk you will take because you've been misled by, by your assessment of risk. Um, but secondly, one thing we do um, at a portfolio level, at the very top level, is we have a risk budget, as you said, and we've been running a 10% annualized standard deviation of daily returns risk budget. Mm -hmm. 
So when we build our portfolio, if we're at high watermark, we try and take 10% uh, vol risk. Mm-hmm. If we have a negative return and we draw down, and then we continue to have a negative return and we continue to draw down, then the portfolio is telling us something. In spite of all our efforts to build models and dynamically weigh them and build risk and control, whatever we're doing across our whole system just isn't working if we're continuing to publish negative returns. So our ability to forecast and build robust portfolios in the market is not working. Probably should do less of that in the future. If we believe that markets tomorrow will have similar characteristics to markets yesterday, if they're serially correlated, we probably should do less tomorrow of the thing that wasn't working yesterday. And so therefore, we reduce our risk budget. So as we draw down, we stop building full risk budget portfolios and we build portfolios with lower risk. And then when the market starts performing again, when our approach starts performing again, we start building higher risk portfolios. The reality, therefore, is that we're continuously adjusting our risk in the market, um, both across assets, maximizing the sources of return by model, but also at a portfolio level, we just take less market risk in difficult to forecast markets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll talk to some managers and they say, well, I, I have, I go long or short a dollar, I have a take profit stop loss, and I apply the same approach at my portfolio level. If I have a 20% drawdown, I'll halve my risk. And for those managers that are trading trend type strategies, which can have rapid drawdowns and bounce back, keeping risk on so one has the full risk allocated for the bounce can be a risk management approach. But what happens when it doesn't bounce? When it goes down 10%, down 20%, half the risk is taken off and then it bounces. You're going to have to make a lot more than 40% get to, to get back to where you started because you've only got half the risk on and now you're at now you're 80 trying to get back to 100 with half risk. So actively managing risk on the downside is what we do. And it's akin to having a put protection at the fund level. So we could go to the market, we could buy a put option to protect the return of our portfolio. Now, no one will sell us a put option because no one knows what we have in our portfolio and it's changing every day. So you can't go and buy that. But as a risk manager, you could construct your own. You know, we came from... Uh, derivatives risk management background where we were continually hedging options in our book. Delta hedging those options. We're doing a similar thing here. We are taking risk off as the nav falls and putting risk back on as the nav rises. That delivers a much smoother risk profile and return profile at the fund level. Um, It has a cost. You're taking risk off, you're putting it back on. There's transaction costs there. like there would be with hedging any synthetically creating or hedging any any option position we believe that drag on performance is more than justified by the, the high quality control of risk and, and downside risk control Speaking of drawdowns which is uh, sort of the next topic I wanted to uh, just ask you a little bit about in a strategy like yours, what what kind of drawdowns do you expect uh, the program will suffer from from time to time, and uh, how does that align with what you've seen so far? Um, I think, you know, in the long run, a manager that can deliver 
a net of fees uh, return of a sharp ratio of one and a, a drawdown to vol ratio of one, I think is, is doing a good job in the long run. Um, you know, we think the active management of drawdowns, um, it should deliver better than that. Um, it does depend on the nature of the way the drawdown is occurred. Clearly, if um, we're taking risk, adjusting risk on a daily basis, then if the drawdown occurs over gradually and slowly over many days, then we're slowly taking risk off. If the drawdown occurs over relatively few days, then we're not taking risk off you know, minute by minute, but we're taking it off day by day. If, the, if a drawdown occurs over five days, then we've probably held more risk uh, on average than if it occurred over 100 days. Sure. But a 10% drawdown sure. on a 10% volatility portfolio, I think would be um, a good result many managers i think uh, yeah i think that's an excellent result i mean a sharper one for a cta uh, is uh, significantly higher than what the industry has delivered uh, uh, which is about 0.4 so so i think that that's an excellent uh, result if you can deliver that um but and and obviously you you can't as such know what other people are doing but uh, i'm just curious to your your point of view a lot of firms are doing some really sophisticated stuff out there and there are firms with, you know, a lot of bright people, yet most of them suffered, you know, significantly higher drawdowns in 2013 than they have ever experienced before, despite all the brain power, despite all the computer power that, you know, we, we have nowadays. Why do you think that is? Yes, we will, without perfect, um, <laughs> you know, perfect ability to look inside every every firm. That's hard to say. I think there's perhaps two things to think about, though. One is, um, and it's, it, to some extent, it's the same thing. It's the concentration of approach. Um, the we talked about before. Some of these risk premium are easy to access. Mm -hmm. uh, I can buy a book on Amazon. I can implement a trend following strategy. And if we all use the same model, then um, if we all decide to get out, we're all rushing for the door at the same time, which causes prices to overshoot. We have seen a structural change in the business, in the market, CTA managed futures market, in the last, actually across hedge funds in general in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. as Smaller investors coming through the private banking channel, coming through the fund of funds channel, have decreased in importance mm -hmm. um, post Madoff and concern about operational risk and due diligence and so forth. And the assets that are flowing in the industry tend to be flowing into the larger firms. Sure. Um, given the choice of being able to invest with 100 managers managing 100 million or one manager managing 10 billion, which is the better choice? Well, if there was no operational risk, there's no business risk, then 100 managers managing 100 million is likely to give some diversification because the, the, the techniques will be slightly different, the timing will be slightly different, there will be smaller market impact when those managers trade. We're going to the $10 billion manager, he's unlikely to have the same level of diversification that 100 smaller managers would bring. So I think the increased flow of assets into the larger managers is potentially increasing market impact problems. And when we have, so when we have um, you know, some of the events we had in 13, we saw 
uh, a dramatic decrease in the dispersion across asset markets, a correlation between them. We had political risk factors um, and a, a lot of event risk. And I think that's what we saw coming through. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of investors probably favor the big managers because they feel that that is less risky. But what you're saying, and I agree with that, inadvertently in in doing so, they're actually creating a lot more risk in the system. Similarly, as we've seen from central banks trying to, you know, lower the risk in the system um, and, you know, talk about systemic risk and all of that. But in fact, with all the increased regulation and changes, we've had, we have a lot fewer but much bigger financial institutions today. And if we're going to use the same, you know, uh, uh, rule, um, in, in a sense, the system may actually hold much bigger risks today than it did before the crisis that everybody got burned in. I think that's true. But I think the, the decision to allocate to a large manager is, is, is the right decision given the criteria those large allocators use. And investment performance is one of many criteria. And I think fund of funds used to insulate the smaller managers from some of the risk or diversified away the single manager risk. Um, so larger allocators could access those pools. It is harder today than it was um, and that increases some some of the market impact challenges, as we said. For sure. Now, drawdowns are clearly very emotional, both for the managers and for the investors. And you, you probably, through experience, have found ways of dealing with those emotions. But I'm happy for you to talk about that. But my real question is, looking at the world today, looking at your your approach, your systems, everything you've done, is there anything that keeps you awake at night, some kind of risk that you just know you can't model? We try very hard, as I think you, you <laughs> hinted at in the question, to try and find the risks and, and address them. It's the risks we don't know. It's the unknown unknowns, um, which is the famous, I think it was originally, it came from NASA originally before Rumsfeld. But, Rumsfeld, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long, you know, well-known well a long-standing phrase, but it's the unknown unknowns. And, mm. you know, the known unknowns, we can build, we can diversify and, and manage the risks we know. We can build circuit breakers um, for the risks, you know, the known unknowns. But, you know, it's the things we don't know about that we didn't know they existed, so we couldn't build some safety measures in place. And, you know, that... That's the risk to any business. And it's a business, both an investment risk, it's an IT risk, it's a business risk. Um, does it keep us awake at night? We have tried systematically through the way we've built our business and, and through process um, to make everything we do repeatable. And we've learned a great deal over the years and our time at HSBC also. Um, so we believe we've, you know, we're in control. There are very few unknown unknowns. We, that's, that's by definition. So. Sure. By definition, no one knows. Sure. I want to just touch upon another topic um, as we go into the sort of the final uh, part of our conversation, and it's of course research. And we've already talked about some of this, so I'm not going to dwell over it uh, too much. But 
in in terms of sort of the the research cycle you know from idea generation to model implementation etc cetera, etc cetera, um different people have different ways of doing this what what's your site what does your research cycle look like for us we have we have an idea um we use a variety of of of, of software tools to, to test that idea they could be rapid prototyping tools data visualization tools uh, tools which explore the, the search space of, of of different models that might help us extract a premium in a certain way um you know one of the things we spent a lot of effort on when we started ccm was thinking about the research tools that we need to use mm-hmm. and i think it's 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 a lot easier and it's very convenient for people in a research environment to live in a cozy world where they don't have to face up to implementing the thing they've researched. Yeah. Um, and what that means is one can one can cut corners. One can use uh, scripting languages. One can make assumptions. One can write much shorter code and simplify the approach if one doesn't have to think, how would I implement this? Uh, and one thing we spent a great deal of time doing is to ensure that our trading system is our back testing and research system. So it's the same code base. It uses exactly the same um, step through time. The, the only difference really is the system's told it's the 1st of January, go and trade. It's the 2nd of January, go and trade. It doesn't go to an exchange. It goes to a synthetic exchange with a transaction cost model, and it gives representative fills of what you would have had at the time. And it does all the end-of-day processes, post-margin, funds, cash, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a fully faithful backtesting system so that when we move something from research to production, it represents reality. And we know, you know that we can trust you know, we can trust what we've, we've tried in the lab. Um, so we go through a uh, an idea generation. It's got to have a solid, uh, solid ideas, a solid driver of return. It can't be a, a purely a data driven approach. Rigorous back testing. We look at the marginal contribution of of that idea to our portfolio. But one of the interesting and I think you know benefits of our approach is we can put a model into our framework, and its influence on the position we take in the market is a function of its marginal contribution. How much better is it than what we've already got in there? And if it's not really any better, it doesn't, doesn't have a large influence in our forecast and then and therefore in our portfolio. If it performs well for a while and then stops performing, it was a badly specified model. It gets deselected, the confidence goes down, it gets turned off. So for us, it's it's not like we're carving out a, a block of capital from from other models and allocating it across to the new model where you put it in the portfolio. And if it underperforms, we've not only had a um, a loss, but missed an opportunity to use that capital elsewhere. Um, so because it's a self self adjusting system. Sure, sure. Now, if you were going to put yourself in the investor's shoes, so to speak, looking at either your own firm or uh, other similar systematic firms, what would you rather look at? You know, a three or five year live track record or a 20 year simulation of the current configuration of the model? Has that team ever <laughs> traded live or do they just have yeah, a Yeah, yeah, no, they, no, no, they have a three. I mean, again, going back to one of the early questions we, we, we talked about, for all newer managers, 
length of track is difficult to to deliver. So, but actually, even with people with a twenty year track, I would argue that it's probably not worth a lot because the model will usually have changed so many times that whatever investors are looking at is going to be very different. So my, my question is really, is live track records, you know, how do you compare a live track record with a, say, a simulation uh, of the current configuration of the model? What should, you know, could investors in theory, at least, be better off with a simulation, understanding all the uh, obviously uh, people could do a simulation badly and it's difficult and then it's a dangerous thing to look at. But let's just assume that people are, we're, we're talking about things that are done the proper way and, and not yeah. over-optimized. So I think a 20 year track record is useful because if a team has continued to deliver strong performance over 20 years, it's demonstrated that it has the skill to adapt to markets. And that's what investors are buying, skill. Um, as to whether a track record or a simulated track record, what's the relative merits? Um, I think track record, unfortunately, <laughs> my comment's not going to change anything, <laughs> but I believe a track record is is a very blunt instrument. Investors shouldn't be looking at track record. What they should be doing is understanding what the manager does, but more importantly, why he does it. And why did you make the choice to do this thing that you say you do as opposed to other things you could do? Justify that. Do you have a understanding of what you're doing? Do you have a process? And do you have the skill to deliver that repeatedly in the future as market conditions change? Um, and a track record, as we've said, is is evidence of performance, which is skill plus luck. So they need to go much deeper than that. A back test, yeah, it's useful. It shows me that something you did produced some numbers. The problem with the back test is um, anybody can produce a great back test. Sure. So you need to get far deeper to understand why did you do the thing you did when you constructed your models, which produced this back test. Now, why is life track record more important? Because life track record you can't hide, and there will be, there may be assumptions made in the back test, but also market conditions change, and a, ca- a track record captures that. What the investor should be asking is, I see a three-year track record. Um, what did you do as you pass through those three years? What did you change? How did you evolve uh, as market conditions change, and why did you do that? Show me evidence that you have adapted in the past. And you will continue to adapt for me as your investor in the future, because I'm not buying a point in time system. We're not going to take your system and put it on a USB stick and take it away and trade it. I want you to be continually improving and adjusting and adapting and questioning the thing that you do, not tinkering, not interfering what network not necessary, but we don't want a 15 year old system. So I think the investor should be looking through and having detailed conversations about why to assess whether that team has the competence to deliver good returns in the future. Sure. And backtest and live is just some evidence of that. 
sort of a, a slightly different question as we leave sort of the, the research. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, if you won the lottery tomorrow and you had suddenly an extra million dollars to spend on research in 2016, what would you spend that money on? If I look forward, you know, if it had to be in research, because there's, you know, there's many things as an investment manager one can can invest in outside sure. of just, just the research. Sure. Um, but if I look at research, if I look forward at where markets might be 15 years from now, and I look where they were 15 years ago, we were we were voice trading, then we were screen trading, and then we were um, or screen chat, then screen trading, and then we've got machines making markets now. Um, and I'm reminded of the equity startup work that we did at HSBC and the markets we traded then. And equity startup was fast moving from being something which was traded you know, in the late 90s on perhaps a monthly basis towards being traded daily and then intraday. And it looks more like a high, uh, short-term market-making strategy. And I think you know, within the CTA space, we're trading risk premium. Uh, we have a systematic approach where IT, IT sophistication levels is high. Um, you know, I think we're going to move in that direction where we're increasingly trading a blend of forecast models from short-term, minute, hourly, way out, out to one year. And people will need to embrace this um, to stay ahead of the complexity curve. Otherwise, we, you know, we risk... Those managers that are trading, you know, using today's techniques in 10 or 15 years time, I'm sure today's techniques are going to be available on Amazon in, in 10 years time. You know, we need to continue moving and increasing uh, the sophistication of what we do. Sure. So I will be looking into, into, uh, into research into those areas. Sure, sure. I want to just uh, touch very briefly on sort of the, what I call the business side uh, of the firm, but not much. And then jump to the last uh, section um, that I want to cover today. Um, and it's just to get an understanding. I mean, what do you think are the biggest challenges from a business point of view where you are and where many firms are in our industry? What, 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 what's the, what are the key challenges you face today? Raising assets. Yeah. Because I think that's something that most people would say, yeah, that that's really tough. Even the bigger ones, uh, you know. So how how do you overcome yeah, I, that? Challenge? I mean, I think it's we talked before about the move towards large allocations from the institutional space to the very largest managers. I think it's it's difficult for an emerging manager, even a manager with 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 strong evidence of skill in the past, mm. to to grow rapidly because there is a process. One needs to uh, show evidence of, of skill in the current organization. Uh, one then needs to initiate conversations with institutional allocators. Those conversations, as, as you well know, move at their own speed and are relatively slow. Um, I think at the present time, one of the challenges is that the allocations into the CTA space are um, new money into the space is coming in slowly. Um, and the money that is already allocated in the space is turning over relatively slowly as well. So I think what we need to do as, as an industry is to perhaps look at our investor base and ask ourselves whether we are delivering what they want rather than 
considering just the investors that traditionally allocate to CTAs and managed futures, whether there are whether we should be talking to a wider investment audience. Um, the fact that we implement our approach through futures um, doesn't prevent us seeing this is an asset management business, and we should be talking the language of the broader asset management uh, investor community and look to those investors to bring assets into this space. I think that's that's a big challenge for the industry. It's a hard thing for a smaller manager to do, but one can think much more um, much more um, broadly than just the traditional traditional allocators. Um, and it's easier for a smaller manager to be more nimble and uh, more creative in in how he delivers delivers his product than perhaps some of the the larger managers who have an established product and, and distribution channel. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. It's a big uh, it's a big topic. It's a big issue and uh, and a big challenge. I know the next question is is I think it's just probably the last one in this section, um, and it's not directly relevant to you, uh, but I will ask it anyway because of your long experience and because it's a question that I I get from people listening. Today, my understanding is you don't have an, an offshore fund per se that you run, so you don't necessarily have to deal with this issue, but at some point, I'm sure you will. And that is, you know, in our strategies, we don't use very much of the cash, you know, five, 10, 15, 20% maybe goes to putting on the positions as margin. So there's a lot of cash sitting around, not doing anything. If you had a fund today, how would you in, in the world we live in today, the zero interest rate environment, and with all the talk about rate increases uh, we're hearing, how would you allocate or what would you do or have done to all the spare cash in a fund, how how should because I think people sometimes forget that that could actually be a big a big risk in the strategy in mm. itself uh, if mm. that cash is not managed properly. So, do you have any thoughts of how how you would do it if you were in a situation like that? Um, you're right, and the uh, there's been increasing focus on that in in recent years. I mean, we can look at the standards that have been laid down. Um, under USITs and the expectations there for cash management and counterparty credit uh, risk management. Um, and it, it is tempting for perhaps a manager in in these markets with yields at these levels to think more creatively as cash management as an opportunity to improve returns available. But we're in the business of delivering returns from the managed futures uh, asset class and cash is a is just a product of the fund investment. So that should be invested across uh, sovereign debt and a range of cash counterparties to minimize the, that counterparty risk. Sure. Well, before we jump to the last section, I want to ask you a question that um, I try to ask uh, everyone. Um, and, and in particular, someone like you who've been in, I'm sure, no doubt, many, many different due diligence meetings or due diligence calls with investors. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the question that investors should be focusing on when they talk to someone like you, but may not be focusing on? What are the things they, they're not asking you that you think they really should be asking? I think I'm probably going to answer this the same way I've answered 
you know, one of the questions earlier, okay. Neil, so I apologize. Um, I think investors should try to understand there's more than one right way to deliver a good investment return from the markets we trade. So asking what a manager does and writing that down on a form, I don't think really satisfies the aim of that investor. They should understand why the manager made the choice he made and assess whether the reason given was a good reason. He could choose to do A or B or C, all very good reasons, but can he explain why he chose A and what will cause him to do things differently in the future? So to try and understand the thought process behind the decisions that were made when choosing the investment process, how he chose to implement that, how he chose to um, address risks within his business, within his investment process, rather than uh, perhaps what some perhaps some first stage filtering of, of, of allocators where they're collecting data um, and collecting data and ask whether you do A or whether you do B, whether you do C, I think doesn't really help you understand what what is the driver of those returns of the investor. Now let's jump to the last section today which is a little bit about getting to know you maybe a little bit uh, better Andrew <laughs> so I, I call it general and fun and, and and we'll see how how we go but the first one is is probably more in in the general thing and that's just in your definition in 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 your mind what does it take to become a great trader or great fund manager perseverance it takes a very long time to build um To build a business, an investment management business, one clearly needs a wide range of skills within the team, um, a, a lot of luck, uh, a lot of perseverance, and one should not overestimate quite how long things take. Um, and things outside one's control. I mean, sure. what is the, you know, what is the quotation? People underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years and overestimate what they can achieve in two. And in this business, there are so many uh, event event risks outside one's control that affect the rate at which one can be successful in the business. Um, so a basic grounding in statistics, in computer science, in quantitative theory, et cetera, is a given. But it's in launching an investment management business, it could take three years longer just because of something that happens tomorrow in the market because markets are frozen for three years and one needs to keep going and maintaining the team and the business and show that one can adapt and evolve and deliver still deliver good returns through those changing market conditions sure earlier today a number of times in fact you have made it very clear what you think people should ask um, and there's one particular word that you always mention so i'm, I'm going to make sure i don't miss that so i'm going to ask you Why do you do what you do today? I think it's and one I, of the most... Okay. And I don't mean the technical part. I mean you yeah. as a person. Yeah, it's a fantastic challenge. You know, as I said, when I started at heart, I'm an engineer. I enjoy building things, uh, continuing to improve and adapt the thing that we've built as we get more feedback of how it performs and we learn more about the problem itself. And then we can improve the machine, if you will. Um, so it's a fantastic 
uh, challenge. And the, one of the things that makes finance so challenging is it's continually evolving and changing as the global economic market evolves. But it's also a competition. If I extract that risk premium from the market today, can I do it more efficiently than you can? And if I do, then my returns are going to be much higher quality. So it's a game in competition with other smart people in the industry. And I've worked with some fantastic people over the last 20 years. Um, it's a great industry in which to work. And it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's hard. It is hard. And for people who um, see the world as, as black and white, as this is the right answer, that is the wrong answer, it's a particularly hard business because the answers, the logic is fuzzy um, and one needs to live in a world of, well, this is an appropriate answer or solution to the problem today and we'll iterate and approve. And if one can deal with that, then it's a fantastically satisfying business. Sure. Great. Now, if you're going to recommend a book to someone, you know, about trading, let's start with that. Um, something where you think by reading this, people will improve and learn. Is there any book that you would, that you can think about that, that uh, you would recommend? Well, I, you know, I thought you might ask this, Niels, sure. and, and I, I thought long and hard to <laughs> the, the, the way back when I moved into finance and I thought, well, what, what book was relevant then to me and what book is re still relevant today? Mm -hmm. And actually I came up with two. Okay. Um, one was the extraordinary popular delusions and the <laughs> madness of crowds uh, written by a, a Charles Mackay in, in 1841, a uh, Scottish journalist. And he covers you know, the bubbles from the 1600s and 1700s, the South Sea bubble, tube mania, and so forth. And the irrationality of, of human behavior that when one is, is, is in, in of it of the time, it, for most people, they don't see it. And that mm. continues to appear throughout human behavior and financial markets. And we've seen that you know, relatively recently. So that was an observation of um, the second book was Winner's Curse by Richard uh, Thaler. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, he looks at the fact there are biases everywhere in people's behavior, that fact that in horse betting, the long odds are more favored at the end of the day as, as people are, are trying to recoup their winnings <laughs> or, or their losses before they go home. And you would think, ah, well, that's the irrational and sophisticated world. Mm. But at, at Deutsche Bank in New York, we launched something called economic derivatives. They were derivative bets on non-farm payrolls and other numbers where people could, rather than using futures markets or similar, could actually take discrete bets with odds on non-farm payroll outcomes. And it might not surprise you to know that the most popular bets were the extreme bets. Mm. The, the number comes in very different from expected. The, therefore, the best risk adjusted return was to buy consensus mm. because consensus is underpriced, just like buying the favorite in a horse race is often a very good strategy. So I think those two books, they, they were relevant in the early 90s, and I think they're still relevant today, and that human behavior persists all market, through all markets. Sure. And is there another book, but more not so much to do with trading and stuff like that, but just a book in general that you read that really had a big impact on maybe the way you 
you know, see the world of an entrepreneur or sort of personal development or something that just had a big impact of you? You seem to, uh, you seem to have read a lot of books. Well, I picked a climbing book. Okay. Um, and this was written by a guy called Reinhold Messner. Mm-hmm. He was uh, the first mountaineer to climb all 14,000, uh, 14, 8,000 meter uh, right, peaks. Summit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this was back in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, climbing a mountain, the guy who got to the top gets his name on the record books, but he had a team of people behind him. Mm. He had a team, whether they were carrying the oxygen, the porters on the tents, he had to manage and, and hire and coordinate that team. And mountain climbing is is management of risk, risk you know about, management of resources, and event risk that you know, things that could happen and things you're not expecting. And there's an element of looking at as well. And in my in, you know in my early days, um, you know in in finance, I was still uh, you know st- still able to spend time climbing mountains. And uh, you know that was a book that I remember as being you know quite quite influential for me. Sure. Sure, sure. May I ask you, Andrew, do you have children? I do. I have a, I have a son and a daughter. Okay. Now, if you could just pick one of your own skills to pass on to your children, what would that be and, and, and why? Um, a skill? Um, that's, that's a hard one. A, a single skill? A single skill, maybe two if, if you have to. Um. Maybe it's not a skill. I would say more of a sort of an outlook on life. Um, uh, optimism, um, persistence. Um, it, it never fails to amaze me what can be achieved by by a man who, who sees possibilities and just keeps going, doesn't give up. Um, I mean, I guess the list goes on, but I think they're two pretty good attitudes and attributes for outlook on life. Sure, absolutely. Now, just a couple of questions left, um, Andrew. I wanted to ask you about a fun fact about yourself. I mean, <laughs> you know, something that people who who know you might even not know about you. Is there any secret talent or something else that uh, that uh, that you wish to share? <laughs> uh, I think it's probably already come through my passion for flying. I. You know, many years ago, I, I got my private pilot's license down at Biggin Hill, a mm-hmm. uh, little airfield uh, on the outskirts of London. And uh, I've flown widely when we lived in the United States. I, I, I flew around many parts of the U.S. and North America, Canada, Canada and, and the United States and, and also around Europe. I have a I have an instrument rating, which means I can fly in cloud and you know, uh, a great you know, a great trip for me is to jump in the plane and off down to Geneva and go and hit the uh, go and hit the Alps. And uh, within Europe, increasingly with the uh, you know security system we have, sure, um, it's fantastic to be under one's own steam. And from door to door, it's uh, it's far far faster than commercial. Sure. What kind of plane do you fly? I fly a just a single engine Piper. So okay. it's like a. Uh, it's like I'm trying to think a, a Ford, you know, a, a standard family car with wings. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I said earlier, I asked you earlier about, you know, what are the questions that investors fail to to ask? So I'm going to turn it on myself at the very end here and just ask you, is there anything I've missed today? Um, and uh, if so, um, what 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 should I have asked you uh, that that I didn't? 
I think you've been very thorough, Niels. And um, I, I no, I can't think of anything. Um, it's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your questions. I hope uh, you know. I hope that was it was certainly interesting for me, and uh, you know, I hope that's interesting to your listeners and, and useful. Uh, to people but um no i think you've been very fair thank you good no i appreciate that um and, and and thanks again very much for for your time but but before we end uh, our conversation just a, a a sort of looking at at uh, into the future a little bit well what do you see for for cambridge capital management and and the managed futures industry as a whole i mean you've obviously looked at it for for a number of years and if you're just looking a little bit forward what what do you see for for both yourself and, and, and the industry? I mean, for us, um, as you said, um, we, we've just passed our three-year track record, which is important for many people. Yep. Um, you know, the markets have been challenging for the space. Um, and, you know, we've certainly, you know, we, we've certainly found that. So uh, we fortunately have had good numbers last year in this. And we've got, um, since we started talking to the institutional allocators in earnest, Early this year, we we have some very productive conversations ongoing, and we hope to be launching an onshore with uh, onshore US offshore uh, fund uh, just just in the new year. In terms of um, you know, in terms of the space, as I think I said before, the challenges for the space to embrace the need to explain what they do to an audience which can have a wide variety of experience, some which are familiar with more sophisticated and some with less sophisticated techniques, to embrace the audience, educate, teach people, explain what they do, why they do, demonstrate skill, uh, and consider also an audience outside the traditional, perhaps outside the traditional CTA space. Because managed futures is a process that happens to trade you know, it, futures, but it's an investment process. And I think that is applicable to a, a wider range, a wider range of investors. And that is the challenge for us to bring new investors into the space. Sure. No, absolutely. And and as we wrap up, I want to make sure that I thank the the Eurex Exchange, uh, who actually sponsored to today's uh, episode. And as many of uh, you listeners uh, know, you know, with all the talk about central banks starting to increase short-term rates, you know, the Euros exchange would be certainly one place to go and, and hedge your portfolio risk. But before we finish completely, tell me, Andrew, what's the best place to go and, and find out more about Cambridge Capital if people want to, to, to dig a little bit deeper? Well, I would encourage everybody to go and look at our website. The website address is uh, CCM llp.com uh, or you can type that into google we'll come up at the top there and um i hope i hope everybody's enjoyed the call today find the information useful and uh, if you wish to contact us we'd be delighted to talk to you then the contact details are on the website great andrew thanks very much for this this has indeed been been great conversation i really appreciate your transparency and, and your willingness to share your insights and views on your strategy and your firm and also your journey which was very uh different uh, the way we started out today um, and of course you know the listeners can also uh, go to the usual place which is the show notes uh, for the top traders on website and find out much more about today's conversation. So I hope that we'll be able to connect at a later date, Andrew, and uh, find out more about the great work you've done in the meantime. And all I want to do at the end is to wish you and your team the very best. 
Thank you, Niels. Thanks once again. Excellent. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.